Good morning. Good morning. It's good to see you. Listen, I see a lot of new faces, people I haven't met yet. My name is Luke. I'm the lead teaching pastor here at Legacy Church. It's good to be here. I've been gone for about a month um, doing some work in Texas. And every year that I go to Texas and do that work, I go back to what is my hometown, where I grew up and, and a lot of the, the real crucial change in my life happens. But I got to be honest, I got real emotional this year coming back because this is really my home and you are my people and I missed you a bunch. Um, so it's good to be back in Knoxville. If you have a Bible with you, turn to Matthew 6. We're going to do something very different today, different for our church a little bit and different out of the book of John that we've been in for a long time. Matthew 6. You know, as a senior in college, my last year in college was a season in deep anxiety and deep toil. I spent a lot of nights wringing my hands, um, trying to figure out what I was going to do after school, which I know is not <laughs> very unique. I know if anyone has been through college or is in college, you understand what that is like. Um, I had to make a decision. I had the proverbial fork in the road of choosing to go into a prestigious medical school that I'd worked hard to get into for several years or to just ditch it all and go into the vocational full-time ministry. And that was a hard decision for me. And you know what was not hard about that decision was the money. You'd think that would be it. If you did not know this, pastors don't make as much as surgeons do, okay? That was not the, that, that's not what had me all hung up. It was wondering whether or not I was ruining God's will for my life. It was wondering whether I was screwing up God's plan for me. Ironically, just a year later, I found myself in equally toiling circumstances whenever I was wondering whether I should really marry Paula, my wife, or not. Not because I didn't want to. I wanted to badly. But I caught myself wondering, what if, though? I mean, really, there's billions of people out there. What if I'm not the right guy for her? What if it's somebody else and I'm messing up God's plan? God might have this beautiful road laid out for her and I could be screwing it up. You see, I have no theological framework at all to understand what God's will was or whether or not I was even screwing it up. And making any significant non-ethical change was an exercise in deep anxiety for me. I think it is for some of you, too. Just trying to decode what it is that exactly is God's mysterious secret plan for you and for me. I remember as a young man making a particularly risky decision that I felt like I really needed to make. I'd prayed about it, I had studied, I had thought about it, and I knew I needed to take a risk, I needed to be courageous and do this. And I, I remember a brother who meant well coming up and saying, Luke, listen, I've been praying a lot about what you're doing right now, and I think you were leaving God's will. I think you were leaving his plan, and I'm scared for you. I'm hoping, I'm hoping that you don't do this. It's a mistake. And if you do do it, I hope that eventually you can get right back into the middle of God's will for your life. Listen, I wasn't in sin. <laughs> I wasn't considering living with a girlfriend or anything like that. It was a non-ethical decision. Non-ethical is not the same as unethical, by the way. Okay, unethical, it is what it sounds like. Non-ethical is Toyota or Honda, laminate tile, this job, that job, marrying this girl, that girl, that guy, this guy, those are non-ethical decisions. And that's where I found myself. After hearing my friend say that to me, I remember just being in turmoil. Oh my gosh, 
God had a plan for me, and he might be right. I might be screwing it up. What do I do then? What, what, what does God do? How, how do I get back into the middle of his perfect will? I mean, is he going to be mad at me if I do this? Is he going to punish me? Is it going to hurt? How long? These are the things that made me nervous back then. I think some of you can resonate with this, if not all of you. I think all of us have decisions, big and small, that we carried in here with us today, right? Don't you have some stuff hovering in your world you kind of keep pushing off? Some of us, we just kind of hope time makes the decision for us. Or maybe as time goes on, we get more details and we're able to make a better decision because the risk is removed. I think all of us have decisions big and small. We walked in here with, in fact, you were probably even thinking this morning how nice it would be if God just showed up and told you what to do, right? Whether you should homeschool or not, whether you should foster or not, big decisions, small decisions, just wanting someone to tell you what to do. Here is the question, the big question we're going to ask today, okay? If God cares deeply for you, and he does, relax, if God cares deeply for you and he has a wonderful plan for your life, how can you discover what that wonderful plan is? And should you even expect God to show you? Should you fret and wear yourself out with the heavy burden of trying to discern what God's secret will is for your life so you don't tick him off, so you don't swerve out of his perfect will for your life? This is what I'd like to look at today. Next week, I'd like to look at how we make godly decisions, decisions that you can sleep well at night after you've made them, according to what God's perfect will is for all of us, okay? So it's a little bit of a, of a twofer that we're doing, just a quick two-part thing this week and next week. Now, typically, if you are brand new here and you're a guest for the first time, you might not know this, but what we do, our, our typical MO as a church is we preach linearly through the Bible. So we'll take either a large passage or a book, and we'll just kind of pace ourselves through it. And that's what we're doing in the book of John. Occasionally, though, when you tackle a very difficult concept like the will of God, it helps to do something topical. And in that, you don't rest everything on one singular passage like we typically do. You can throw several out there, and they all kind of point to the same big truths. It's a helpful way to look at concepts like this. So this is what we're going to do today. It's also going to help me frame up a very important update I have for you after the service regarding legacy. But before we even ask what God's will is for you, you have to understand what God's will is in general, don't you? Because that could be tricky. Scholars typically think of God's will in three different ways. And it's been helpful for me, and I hope to kind of teach it quickly with you. There are three distinct ways to consider God's will, and you don't want to get the wires crossed. It's like an action movie, right, with a real sweaty hero trying to unwire a bomb or trying to stop a bomb, and you got the blue wire and the red wire, and if you cross them, you have a mess. I've seen this do the same thing, people crossing the blue wire of what God's will is and the red wire and ending up with a big disaster. So, a lot of the stuff I'm getting is from very, very good, I guess, theology taught well in the past, but you can find it done very briefly in a book called Just Do Something. If you're into buying books or you're about to read a book, Kevin DeYoung wrote this very helpful book, which is kind of a synopsis of about 10 other very thick books, and it helps us when it comes to decision-making. It's called Just Do Something. It's very helpful for us. In fact, I think we're probably going to have it on the table in a week or so. The first will of God I'd like to look at real quickly is called the will of decree. 
will of decree. Don't worry about writing all this down. It's going to be up on the screen, and you're just going to pick it up after a while. The will of decree is God's kingly and sovereign will. It's going to happen if he wants it to happen. And if he doesn't want it to happen, it's just not going to happen. In fact, his will, his will of decree, is never thwarted. It's never stopped. It's never slowed down, never upended, never frustrated. What God wants, God gets. This is his will of decree. He is king over all things. He's king over man, and he's king over moments, okay? The first thing that pops into my mind when I think about passages is probably what some of you thought of, Psalm 139, right? We're going to throw it up on the screen. Again, stay in Matthew 6 if you're there. The psalmist says, Your eyes saw my unformed substance, In your book were written, every one of them, the days that were formed for me, when as yet there was none of them. That means that while you were standing in front of your closet this morning, looking for the least wrinkled thing that you wouldn't have to iron, that you could put on and bring with you today, he knew it. The first time you belly laughed, the next time you belly laughed, that time you cried where no one saw you cry, your most boring moments, your most life-changing moments, He saw all of it and was the administrator of those moments before he even flung the stars into the sky because he has a big will of decree, and it won't be stopped. Isaiah 46, he actually says it a bit more emphatically. He says, for I am God, and there is no other. I am God, and there is none like me, declaring the end from the beginning and from ancient times things not yet done, saying, My counsel shall stand, and I will accomplish all my purpose. Hear that last part. My counsel shall stand, and I will accomplish all my purpose. God knows, and God superintends, and governs all things, and it cannot be overturned, stopped, or frustrated. It's basic theology, but let me try to apply it just for a moment. Occasionally, we'll see a tragedy happen, whether it's caused by weather or not. And the media will zoom in there and just flock in there, and they'll shake the trees. They know where to get the pastors to line up and and approach the camera and say, listen, this wasn't God's will. This whole thing wasn't God's plan at all. Now, what if they're saying is, man, God's not excited and like super excited, happy about this? Then, Then okay. But if what they're saying is, is it slipped out of his big, strong hands, then absolutely not. Absolutely not. So Luke, you mean to tell me, you mean to tell me that that tornado that wiped out that middle school was part of God's will? I think what I'm saying right now is nothing happens behind his back. Nothing slips through his big fingers. Nothing. Nothing occurs that is outside of his control, and he presides over every single moment. Listen, if God only designed and orchestrated super cheery, awesome moments, then the cross would have never happened, and you and I are in a big jam then. That was the grotesque, most grotesque thing that has ever happened in human history, and yet it was orchestrated, designed for your benefit and for his glory by our hands and by his will. We see this in Acts 4.27. The very young church was praying to God, and they said, For truly in this city there were gathered against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the peoples of Israel, to do whatever your hand had planned and predestined to take place. It was the will of the Lord to crush him. That's out of Isaiah 53, too, by the way. 
It was the will of the Lord to crush him, but it was our will to crush him too. You read the Gospels, you see men lining up to crush him. These hands crushed him, and it was part of God's will of decree that he would be crushed from this grotesque moment, and from that, grace smiles on us. Smiles on us. You see, he has a will of decree, and we can trust it. We can trust it. And it should drive us to worship the king of all moments, all seconds, all snowflakes, all tears, all laughter, all wealth, all of impoverishment, life, death, grace. He is the God of all. He is grand, and his ways are immeasurably above and beyond our ways. And this will of decree I'm, re- I'm referencing, he keeps it to himself. Oh, how we want to know it, don't we? But he keeps it to himself. Now, this is not to be confused with the will of desire. Will of desire is something a little bit different. Well, it's a lot different than the will of decree. The will of desire are how things ought to be. It's how they ought to be. Now, this we can walk away from. This we can thwart. We can stop. We can upend this. We could choose not to do it. In fact, we're very good at this. Deuteronomy 29 is another passage that puts both decrees right next to each other, or both wills. And it says this, The secret things belong to the Lord our God. That's the will of decree. But the things that are revealed belong to us. That's will of desire. And to our children forever, that we may do all the words of this law. So you see how one he keeps to himself, but another will is revealed for all of us. One will, we we can't do anything to stop it. It's going to be carried through, but the other, we can. We can. It is God's will that we obey his statutes and walk as disciples after their teacher. That is part of God's will. We see this in Hebrews 13. Now may the God of peace equip you with everything good that you may do his will according in us, that which is pleasing in his sight. Matthew 7, 21, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will. This is a different will. Do you see how that's put together? So you see, so far this is pretty easy. No one's getting a headache yet, right? This is not hard theology. It's when we throw in the next one that it gets really crazyville fast, and that is the will of direction. It's the last one, the will of direction. This is a projection we make on God where allegedly he promises to reveal his secret plans for our immediate needs. I've got a big decision, and he has a secret plan for me, and I'm burdened and tasked with figuring out what it is before I decide. I mean, I'll go back to the original question to try to bring it into focus. If God has a wonderful plan for my life, how can I discover what it is? Kevin DeYoung in his book says, he doesn't really intend to tell us what his secret will is for our life, and maybe we're wrong to even expect him to. Are some of you panicking? Does that make you nervous, maybe a little uncomfortable? Because it does me a little bit. While we are free to ask for wisdom, and we're very free to ask for guidance, and we should because we need it bad, don't we? Even though we're free to ask for those, and God, he gives them to us. We don't have the burden to figure out what the future is so that we're not ticking God off and swerving out of the middle of the lane of his perfect will, especially when making big non-ethical decisions. God does, in fact, have a specific plan for each one of us. That's very true. But it's not one he expects you to figure out ahead of time before you make a decision. God does care about us, and he cares about our important decisions 
But he doesn't obligate us to sit and just put it in park and wait and wait and wait until an angel comes out of the sky and spells out for us the exact decision we're supposed to make. You see, this is all parts and chunks of some weird bad theology. And as I, as I thought about this bad theology, I don't even really know where I picked it up, to be honest with you. But I did. I picked it up. And, and it sounds a little bit something like this. God has tracks laid out for each one of us. Like a train on a track. And it's going a specific way at a specific time. And if you make good decisions, you stay on the track. And if you wait for God to tell you what to decide, then you're sure to stay on the track. But if you make a bad decision, if you make a wrong decision, and you come off that track, you're in this perpetual confusing maze. And good luck getting back on. Because bad things happen to people who are not on the tracks. And only good things happen to people who stay on the tracks. It's odd when I just say it out loud like that. And to be honest, I don't know where I got it. But do you see how petrifying this can be? It ends up with a very nervous and anxious person that, that is just wringing their hands over every non-ethical decision, whether before they make it or after they've made it even. It's called buyer's remorse. Oh gosh, should I have bought that car for that much? Should I have gone to that school? Should I have married this woman? Should I have done these things? We wring our hands and wonder if we in fact left God's perfect will. Friends, listen, it is an act of worship to surrender to God's will of decree, and it is an act of discipleship to walk according to his will of desire, but it can be a total mess expecting his will of direction to rain on us every day. It could be a mess. This is why a lot of people never get married. It's why a lot of people never get jobs. It's why a lot of people never join a church, always wondering that if by choosing this one, I'm screwing up God's plans by not choosing the others around us. And so you can see easily this will produce an inordinate amount of stress and anxiety and worrying inside of a person. So why do we do this? Why do we freeze in indecision full of anxiety and full of worry, especially when making decisions that are, that are pretty big, but then again, non-ethical, right? I think there's a couple big reasons, and we're going to hit them, and then we're going to jump out. One is that we are fueled by self-preserving timidity. We are fueled by just saving our own tails, and when you combine that with a fear of risk, you get people that won't make big decisions. Listen, I am a risk taker in general, okay? Uh, anytime I take an entrepreneurial exam or a personality profile, I, I rank rather high. I don't blow the scale out or anything, but I'm very high in it. But I'll tell you, as, as a risk taker, I would much rather God just come down and say, hey, Luke, listen, that big decision you got to make next week, this is what I would do if I was you, right? I would much rather that happen, even as a risk taker. Overall, I just feel like sometimes a risky move gone wrong punts me out of God's will, and then I'm in trouble that I'm frustrating God's plans, as if God is up there saying, dang, Luke, seriously. I had you going this way, the streets all lit up, and you're way over there. I don't even know what to do now. I'm going to go find a whiteboard. we got to cough up some alternatives really quickly because you're out of my perfect will, and I don't know how to get you back in. But maybe, maybe, gosh, we could get you back into the middle of my perfect plan for your life. It's not really how he handles us, though, is it? You see, this fear of risk that we carry in us when we make risky decisions, it ignores that God has a will of decree that cannot make mistakes. God's will cannot make mistakes. 
God doesn't take risks, so we are free to take risks. And even if you do make a risky decision, a big significant decision, and it seemingly goes sideways, you can always remember God is in control and he's not shocked. He's not, he's not mumbling something under his breath as he rubs his head. He's not doing that because we have a big God and he has a will of decree. Fear of risk also assumes that God can only work in us when we don't make mistakes. Have you noticed that? Like God can only work in our midst if we're on the right track. But if God only works in us and through us and around us when we're not making mistakes, he just wouldn't have very much left to work with, would he? Because we are people of mistakes. I'm sure I've made 50 mistakes up to this point. Look at, look at people like Jonah and Jacob and Samson and others in the Bible who have goofed capital G. Somehow they lost their decoder ring and they don't know what God's will is in a certain situation and they jig instead of jag and before you know it, they're way out on the periphery of the story and it's not looking so good but somehow God seems to do some amazing things in and around them. It's because he has a will of decree. God works through our mistakes to his very ends and oftentimes for our benefit. We see this actually in the most colossal mistake mankind has ever made. And it is throwing our hero up on a cross, is it not? <laughs> was that a mistake? That was a blunder by our hands. It was the moment that God glorifies himself and by grace gives us a gift. But it's also a moment where I look at my hands and I say, oh my God, look what I've done. But then I look at the hands of God move around my mistake and I say, oh my God, look what you have done. It's in my blunder he does something beautiful. It's in my mistake that I see this masterpiece. It's in my rebellion that he draws me close and, and brings me into close relationship, even adopts me. I want you to consider this when thinking about some of the riskier decisions, courageous, we'll say it that way, the more courageous decisions you've had to make. Consider that. Those decisions that you've made were right afterward, you scratch your head and you mumble something, realizing you missed it, or scared that maybe you've done something wrong. What does your theology tell you about God in that moment? Is he still active? Is he frustrated? Is he trying to cycle through new options for you? Is he active? Is he beautiful? Is he in control? You see, I think many of us are trying to escape the pain of a risky decision gone wrong. We just want to know the right answer so that nothing not awesome happens to us. We want awesome things to happen to us. We want God to tell us that awesome things are going to happen to us. And here's the lie. This is the lie I've told myself. This is the lie I see often. I'm not being cowardly. I'm just patiently waiting on the Lord to show me what to do. Okay, maybe. Maybe, because it does take some time, does it not, to read the scriptures, to talk to some trusted friends. It does take some time to think about the angles and consider what does honor the Lord. It does take some time to kind of process it all. We'll use that word. Or we could be stalling. We could be stalling, trying to look spiritual by waiting on the Lord, when really what we're doing is something a little bit closer to cowardice because we don't want something not awesome to happen to you and me. Listen, 
This might sound a little bit different for you, and it might sound a little harsh, but I am utterly convinced. I cannot be stepped away from this point. I'm utterly convinced there is no such thing as good Christian living that is not risky, that is not courageous, does not exist. If you want to live a courageous Christian life, you will slam into risky moments all the time. In fact, that's one of the ways you know you're doing it. Evangelism, risky right? Because they might, they likely will say, you're out of your mind. I don't want to hear anything you have to say right now, right? You, you stuck it out there. You were vulnerable. You got rejected. It's risky. Friendship is risky. Being vulnerable with a friend. I mean, the very first time you say something that really pushed the line of that relationship, it was risky, wasn't it? Leading a community group. I mean, we have some real heroes in this church, who either lead a community group for us or they host one. There's risk in that. Friends, listen, if you're in a community group, they got off of work just like you did. (laughs) But they're trying to navigate everybody's post-work fatigue and try to generate some conversation. And they've got their home open and kids are breaking things and cars are all over the place. And it's risky. Joining a church is risky. Marriage. It's risky. Giving money. These are all things that are risky. You cannot live a Christian life unless it is courageous. In other words, excuse my language, you cannot sit on the pot and wait and wait and wait and wait for an angel to come out of the sky and with a finger of fire draw on the wall for you what non-ethical significant decision you need to make. Sometimes, friends, you just need to pursue Jesus, pray, and make the decision. Just make the decision. Another reason we do this, I believe, is because we're chasing perfection on earth. In other words, if you make all the right decisions, you stay in the center of the lane, everyone gives you a green and a thumbs up. Nothing bad will ever happen to you. But if you swerve out, bad things happen. Potholes show up. You have that annoying rumble strip, right? Tells you to come back onto the highway. But you want to create perfection on earth. I think Hebrews 11 is a bit of a spit in the face to this attempt of my heart to want to know God's will for everything. It goes like this. I'm just going to go from verse 35 and read just a little bit. Some were tortured, it says of the early church, refusing to accept release so that they might rise again to a better life. Others suffered mocking and flogging and even chains and imprisonment. They were stoned. They were sawn in two. They were killed with the sword. They went about in skins of sheep and goats, destitute, afflicted, mistreated, of whom the world was not worthy. This is a hall of fame for people who lived deep in faith, This is a vanguard of people who lived by God's grace, making decisions, hard ones. And I think they would get sick in their stomach listening to a lot of preachers talk about how if you just live according to God's will for your life, you will never have to experience any pain, you will never lose any friends, and you will never get sick. It's a spit in the face of that. Enjoying your every situation is not the win. Enjoying Jesus is the win. Enjoying your every situation is not the goal. We have to move the goalposts. Enjoying Jesus is the win. I was thinking about this last night when I was just 
considering this sermon and what to cut out and what to put in. And I kept telling myself, don't say that, Luke, don't say that, but I'm going to say it, okay? That's my preface. I have a problem. Nine out of ten times I hear Jeremiah 29 used, okay? It goes like this, for I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord. Plans for welfare and not for evil, to give you future and a hope. It's a great passage. It's a great passage. I hear it used incorrectly, misapplied, and dropped and kicked around very often. Now listen, if you have a coffee mug at home that has that on the side, don't go throw it away. It's a helpful passage for you and me, right? Because what God is doing in this is he's telling his people Israel, and they're blistered, and they've been exiled, and they're tired. He's telling them, your captors don't decide when you come home. I know the plans I have for you. I have plans for holistic health to bring you home. They don't decide anything. I have a will of decree. I decide everything. He's talking to exiles he's about to bring home. He's not talking to you. He's not telling you that your hip pain is going to go away because he has a plan for you or that potty training is going to be easy, right? He's not, he's not doing that. This is God speaking through a prophet to a specific people, but, and this is the brilliance of the passage, he's actually speaking right through the people to you and I, because guess what? We also have a king drawing you and I out of exile to come home. Jesus Christ is the climax to a passage like this. You and I are ripped out of exile from a heavy captor, because we have one that is going to give us a future and give us a hope, and it is him taking the pain for our welfare. That's what this passage is talking about. Stop reading it and expecting the American dream to come true. That's not why it was written. He didn't die on the cross for the American dream and for you to avoid headaches and things like that. He died in order to love you, draw you close. And right now he's creating a better place, not on earth, that is a heaven for us. In fact, in fact, if you want to see heaven on earth, which will be shown through the beauty of the church, that will involve a lot of pain and a lot of sacrifice, not the absence of those things. Be right in the thick middle of those things. All right, I told you I wasn't going to do that, but there it is. If I can get back to this just real quickly, I'm going to have to fly. You see, the big problem with decisions is that they make us decide, <laughs> okay? The Latin understructure for the word decide, cut off. It means to cut off. That makes total sense, doesn't it? I mean, if I choose A, that means I'm not choosing B. But what if it was the Lord's will for me to choose B? And there's anxiety built into that moment, is there not? It's not choosing A that makes us nervous. It's losing B that makes us nervous. We have more options today right now than ever before, making it incredibly hard to make decisions and therefore bringing a lot of stress. I brought up college earlier, right? So... My son's a sophomore. It's a little early to be talking about college with him, but we're at least kind of throwing names out there and just considering it. I was curious to how many schools there are in our country. Over 4,200 schools, colleges and universities. That's a lot of choices. Now, some of them, come on, let's be honest. They're not really a choice. You're just never going to go there, right? I mean, really, we're in Knoxville. There's really like one choice. It's right down the street. But for the rest of the world, they've got hard choices to make, don't they? And if you do go to UT, you have to choose within 240 majors. I counted them all. 240 majors. It's not like math and English. 
<laughs> it's like German and ballroom dancing and things like that. There's all kinds of choices to make. What about churches? In our Metro CSA, that's Combined Statistical Area, we have 800 churches. That's anything from the, the creepy, skeezy-looking little log cabin in the middle of the woods all the way up to the mega church with a tram going back and forth from the parking lot and everything in between, right? 800 for you to choose. But the stress comes because if you choose one, you're not choosing another. What if I'm making the wrong decision? What if it wasn't God's will for me to come here? I mean, statistically, it would be God's will that I go to one of the other 799 some churches, right? You see how it gets crazy? If you're at the Cheesecake Factory and you're trying to make a decision, not a lot of stress, right? But if you're choosing a job or a spouse or whether or not to adopt, you've got anxiety. What if I'm exceeding the Lord's will for my life? And what we do is we get fearful of making the wrong decision, so we stay in indecision, somewhere between decisions. We all know what that feels like too, don't we? You have a big decision to make, but you just kind of leave it in the inbox of the brain, but you don't really answer it. I can be there. I think this is why a lot of people struggle finding churches and jobs and spouses. It's because they're in between decisions. Did you know that the median age for men and women to get married is five years older now than it was 30 years ago? They say one of the big reasons that that has happened most likely most likely is because of dating services and apps. Because it used to be, back in the old day, there's one girl at the end of the bar, and I'm pretty sure she's sober. That's a conversation potential right there. I'm going to go down and talk. Or I'm at church, and there's like three single girls here, so there it is. That's my choice, right? But now you can dig your phone out, and off of 40 apps, because I counted 40 on the Android platform alone that targets just Christians, you could go on there, and there could be hundreds of potential people that are the one, the one and only. It's a lot, of, a lot of stress. And again, we pretend to wait on the Lord. And we pretend that that's a mature thing to do. I'm waiting on the Lord to tell me what to do. A lot of times it's just cowardice. It can be a bit goofy. So how do we know what God's will is for our life then? He tells us. Let's look at Matthew 6, and I hope this is helpful today. I spent a lot of time drawing out the problem because it is a complex problem. But look in your Bible at Matthew 6, if it's in front of you, and look in verse 25. Boy, this is such a helpful passage to me. Therefore I tell you, do not be anxious about your life, what you will eat or what you will drink, nor about your body, what you will put on. Is not life more than food and the body more than clothing? Those are non-ethical decisions. Look at the birds of the air. They neither sow nor reap nor gather into barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not of more value than they? And which of you, by being anxious, can add a single hour to his lifespan? And why are you anxious about clothing? Consider the lilies of the field, how they grow. They neither toil nor spin. Yet I tell you, even Solomon, in all of his glory, was not arrayed like one of these. But... If God so clothes the grass of the field, which today is alive and tomorrow is thrown into the oven, will he not much more clothe you, O you of little faith? Therefore, do not be anxious, saying, What shall we eat? Or what shall we drink? Or what shall we wear? 
For the Gentiles seek after all these things, and your heavenly Father knows that you need them all. But seek first. Here it is. This is where he tells us what his will is for us. But seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. Therefore, do not be anxious about tomorrow, for tomorrow will be anxious for itself. Sufficient for the day is its own trouble. We need the Holy Spirit for that passage, don't we? Listen, every time I read that passage, I'm like, I can't do this. Who am I kidding? I'm nowhere close to being able to pull this off. I have to have the Holy Ghost moving in me and helping me walk in this fashion. There is a better way, though. Step one, the better way is just to pursue Jesus. Pursue his righteousness, his kingdom, his presence, his face. His abiding power, his intimacy. This is God's will for you. He doesn't want you to worry about the future. He doesn't want you to be stressed out and anxious. That's not his will for you. That we do know. You know, anxiety and stress, they're a little bit unique because they are things that kind of flank us and hit us, but then we gladly take them and we put them on and walk around with them, don't we? Right? We have hard decisions that stress us out. But then when we say, well, what if it's not the right way? What if I should have gone this way and I went this way instead? I mean, I don't even know. What if it's not even God's will? Then you're inviting it. Then you're wearing it. And that's anxiety we have to repent from. That's a sin against God. Hard decisions are hard. But anxiety can reflect our heart's distrust of God whenever we take that anxiety and put it on our own shoulders and walk around with it. It's a distrust of God. So let's go back to the original question. I'm exiting the sermon. (laughs) The original question is, is if God cares deeply for you, having a wonderful plan for your life, how do you discover what that wonderful plan is? He's given it to us. It's the word become flesh for you and me. It is his perfect will, his beautiful will for you and me that we pursue God's son, our hero, the creator of the universe, the word become flesh. This is how God cares for us deeply. It is his perfect will that we enjoy Jesus with every fiber of our being, every fiber. Stop spending all of your time trying to wrestle things out of God's hands to help you make decisions. Spend that time fixated on his face and what he has already done for us. So what does this mean for our decision-making, which is step two? And I am going to do a detail of this next week. I'm not going to do a detail of it right now. We're out of time. But I will pick a fight right now, and I will say this. In non-ethical decisions, significant ones, pursue Jesus, step one, pursue Jesus, and then do whatever you want. Do whatever you want. Listen, if you love Jesus with every fiber of your being, and you want to buy that house, and you've considered it, buy the house. Don't worry about whether there's one house out of 38 billion homes in the world that could be the one and you're screwing up by getting that. Do you want that one? Yes, I want that one. Buy that house. What about between Susie and Linda? Luke, I can't really decide. Do you like Susie? I like Susie a lot. Does she love Jesus? Yes, she loves Jesus. And you love Jesus. Yes, I do. Marry that woman. (laughs) Marry her. Love Jesus with every fiber of your being and get a job. Take care of your family. Just make a decision. Do what you want. And we're going to talk about next week how to do that in a way that honors God in a wise way. But the punchline is live for Christ. And if your decisions allow you to live for Christ even more passionately, make them. Make them. Tell you what, go ahead and stand with me.
we have an opportunity now, you know, as the musicians are about to come out and they're about to play and lead us through some songs, you can start to do some work. This is where we interact with God. This is where a monologue starts to cruise and kind of morph into a dialogue. We get a beautiful opportunity to interact with God through repentance because of our anxious hearts, because we do have anxious hearts, hearts that don't trust, hearts that don't believe that God is in control, and hearts that believe that he will not care for us. But remember, the real treasure is in not what he's going to do for you today. It's what he has already done for you. That's where the real treasure is found. The good news is in the person of Jesus. And the tomb was empty. So we know we can trust God. He is to be trusted. Anxiety is not necessary. We can make decisions without the burden on us that we are going to frustrate or foil God's golden plan for us. He works in the midst of our mistakes. We are free to be risky. And because of that, we can celebrate. We get to take risks and live courageously because God does not make mistakes at all, and he has a will of decree. His plan is a beautiful one, and we are all beneficiaries of it. And then we get to decide. Some of us have some heavy decisions. As I prayed earlier, we walked in here carrying them. We have to decide. With the Holy Spirit's wisdom and guidance, we're free to do that. We're free to make a decision free of the guilt and the worry and the buyer's remorse that comes with, maybe I'm screwing everything up. Let me pray for you, and then the team will lead you. Father, we thank you. I thank you that you took no risks on me. You've always been in control. To take risks means that one is not in control and things can be lost, but with you, Father, you did not lose any of us. Your will is supreme. And I consider your cross and how the whole world must have looked at that cross full of blood and a dying king wondering everything has gone out of control. Anxiety, toil, dread, worry, the same things we feel today. But that empty tomb shows us that we can trust you, that we can trust you. There is no dead body in that tomb. You are in control. And yet you have a will for us to obey. So we trust your will, and then we follow your will. Now, Lord, I know that we, we each have decisions we need to make today. And they've been bothering us, and they've been tough and hard to make, but problems that just refuse any kind of solution. But, Father, I pray that your Holy Spirit guides us on how to make these decisions. And I pray specifically that your Holy Spirit shows us that when it comes to these significant non-ethical issues, Father, that we're free to choose A or B. We could jig or we could jag, and you were present in both. You will be there. You will not leave us. You will be active. You are so good to us, and we're so thankful for it. We love you, and we thank you, and it's in your name we pray. Amen.